This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Now, clearly, Christ is not condemning long prayers. He himself prayed long prayers. It says in Luke 6, 12, Luke 6, 12, it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called on his disciples and of them he chose 12 who also he named apostles. So before the Lord chose his disciples and became apostles, he spent the whole night in prayer. All night in prayer so that he would be led by God in his choice, even his choice of Judas Iscariot who betrayed him and that caused his crucifixion. He prayed all night, all night in prayer. The Bible tells us to pray often. The Bible says in Luke 18, one, Luke 18, one, he spake a parable unto them to this end. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Luke 21, 36, Luke 21, 36. He said, watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So the issue here is not long prayers. The issue is pretense, which means show off. In other words, to pray long prayers so that others can see you're showing off. You say, oh, look how spiritual I am and look at how close I am to God. And that's why Christ, when he talked about prayers, he said in Matthew 6, 5, Matthew 6, 5, when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. So Christ's formula 
To not use long prayers as a way to show up is to go into a closet. He says, go into a closet, shut the door, hide, pray in secret with no one even knowing about your long prayers. You know, one time there was a reporter who was at a church service in Boston Commons in downtown Boston one Sunday morning, and the pastor prayed a long prayer, and the next day the reporter wrote in the Boston Globe, he says, that was one of the most elegant prayers that was ever prayed to a congregation. (laughs) Now, it's been observed that when the church went away from God, that public prayers got longer and longer with no direction going all over the place. But when the church got close to God, public prayers got shorter and more to the point. Prayers when there are other people present, should be short and they should be to the point and they should be on subject. Prayers for a church service should be for the church service and not for everything under the globe. And Christ warned against what he called vain repetitions. In other words, just repeating words like a method to be heard by God for what he called much speaking. You know, an example of vain repetition is reciting the rosary. The rosary with each bead in the rosary is used to pray the same words. Essentially, the rosary is stealing glory from God, stealing glory from Christ, and giving it to Mary. It's a horrible thing. Basically, in praying the rosary or any form of repeated prayers, the mind is just clicked off. It's just turned off. And the effort that's put in is just to say the right words. It could even be repeating the Shema. Just by, without even thinking, just say, waking up in the morning, as my father did, every morning, and what Christ is saying is to use the mind when praying. Use the mind. Don't turn it off. You know, my wife, she had a practice. It's very interesting. When she would write a letter to somebody, it was a big, huge thing with her. She wrote drafts of the letter before the finished copy. I mean, I still have copies of those drafts. I look, I'm amazed. She wrote a draft of the letter, and then she would read it, and as she read it, she would cross off this part and change words, and the letter, the draft is all marked up. And then she'd say, that, okay, then she would write a clean copy, another clean copy of a draft, and she did the same thing. She ended up writing two drafts of a letter before she did the final, she was satisfied with it. She says, okay. In fact, I remember one day when Ruth Sasaki, she came to me and she showed me a letter that Cheryl wrote to her. And Ruth was very impressed with the thought that Cheryl had put into the letter and the words and she wrote to Ruth. And so Ruth kept that letter. In fact, Cheryl had a pen pal in prison and she wrote letters to her pen pal and she spent a lot of time writing those drafts and getting those letters to her pen pal in prison just right. Now, what she did not do is she didn't just sit down and write whatever came off the top of her head. That was her first draft in those letters. She worked and she reworked those letters till she had it just right and that was the final version of the letter. Prayer is like a letter that we write to God. That's what prayer is. It's like a letter that we write to God. And you gotta ask yourself the question, what difference it would make if we sat down and we wrote down what we wanted to say to God, and then we did the same thing, and we read it, and we said, no, that's not what I wanna say to God, and we put it, and finally, our letter to God, which is our prayer. And then, you know, when she read her first draft, maybe read our first draft, she thought through each word. She changed words just to get those words to say what she wants to say. She thought, read every sentence. 
get to make sure it was just right, so that it was right on a point. I mean, what a difference it would make in our prayer life if we wrote down first what we wanted to say to God and read it to ourselves and asked the question, as you do with anything you write, is this what I really, really want to pray to God? Is it clear? Is it clear? I wonder if sometimes God hears our prayers and he says, I don't know what they're saying. I don't know what they're asking for. It's a little unclear to me. I hear a lot of words that I've heard before, but I don't. So the first question is, is this what I'm really, is this clear, what I'm gonna say to God? Second, is what I'm gonna pray to God really to the point? It's really to the point. And third, is there a better way to express what I wanna say to God? Have I used the best words to communicate to God in prayer? And after we've read and reread and combed and recombed over the text, we put it in the final form and then we pray that to God. What a difference would make in our prayers. Because the best communications, the very best communications are not long. They're short, they're to the point, and they leave no room for misinterpretation. And that, it doesn't just come off the top of the head, it has to be worked on. Now, blind men, came to Christ and he asked them uh, really what was a shocking question in Matthew 20, verse 29, Matthew 20, verse 29. They departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And the multitude rebuked them because they should hold their peace, but they cried the more saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, what will you that I shall do unto you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. And Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes. Immediately their eyes received sight, they followed him. Now we can just imagine the crowd there. I mean, here's two blind men who are sitting there on the side of the road they hear that Jesus is passing by. They begin to cry out for Jesus to have mercy on them. He calls them, Christ calls them to come over to him. He asks them the question of what they wanted Christ to do for them. We can imagine the shock of the crowd when they heard this, that the men are blind. The men are blind, it's obvious. But that was not enough for Christ. We can imagine the people saying to themselves, what Christ should do for the blind men? They're blind, he should give them sight. The need was obvious, they were blind. But just because the need was obvious, that was not enough for Christ. They had to come to Christ, they had to ask him to give them his sight. Coming to Christ was a form of strengthening their faith by strengthening, by getting them to affirm that they really believed that Christ was able to give them sight. And when he asked that question, Christ is drawing out from them their confidence that he was able to give them sight. By asking that question, he was drawing out for them their belief that Christ is God. That's what he was drawing out, and therefore he was able to heal them, just as Christ said to another two blind men in need of having their sight given to him in Matthew 9.27, Matthew 9.27, where it says, and when Jesus departed thence, Two blind men followed him, crying, saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto him, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They say unto him, Yes, Lord, yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus straightly charged them. 
I shouldn't tell anybody. So the issue, the issue was whether they believed that Christ was able to give them sight. So he asked them this point blank, do you believe I can do this? And, and by asking those, again, this other set of blind men, if they believe that he was able to cure their blindness, he's drawing out of them again. He's drawing out of them their firm belief, do you really believe that I am God? And this is just the opposite of the desperate father who came to Christ for his son, and he had the attitude of, why not? Why not try anything? Christ, Buddha, enchantments, whatever. When the desperate father came to Christ and said in Mark 9.20, Mark 9.20, they brought unto him, and when they saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And oft times it doth cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out, said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. So the father, he had this position of, well, if you can do anything, help us, if you can do anything. Those are the words of, I don't know if you could do anything or not, but if you can, do something. Those are the words of unbelief. That's the words of unbelief. And that's why Christ turned to the Father and pointed to his unbelief problem and said, what do you mean whether I can do anything? The problem is not whether I can do anything, the problem is whether you can believe in the power of Christ, which is why he put the spotlight on him in Mark 9.23, Mark 9.23, Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. It's all about believing. It's all about believing that Christ is God. That's the limiting factor. And that's what the desperate father saw and recognized that the problem was. And that's why it says, okay, I'm in unbelief, help me. So this shows us that the design of prayer is strengthen our faith by using thoughtful, concise words, and the poison of this purpose is this the repetition of words without any thought at all. Now, Christ said to these people in verse 14, he said in verse 14, therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. When you read something like that, the greater damnation, I thought damnation is damnation, how can there be a greater damnation? Well, we don't know really very much about hell, it's a good thing, we don't need to other than what the Lord Jesus described as a place where he said, for example, three times in Mark chapter nine, Mark chapter nine, the Lord Jesus repeated that hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not extinguished. Like for example, Mark 9, 48, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. So he describes hell in these terms and he says that it's a place where there's some kind of a horrible, intense darkness, an intense darkness that brings about an intense sorrow and a frustration in Matthew 8.12, Matthew 8.12. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, gnashing of teeth, grinding teeth, is, is an expression of Frustration, it's the frustration that causes the teeth to be ground down because a person in hell is frustrated. Well, what's he frustrated about if he's in hell? He's frustrated because he sees that where he could have been in heaven and how it was all unnecessary, it wasn't necessary for him to be cast into hell. 
And in Luke 13, 28, Luke 13, 28, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. So evidently in hell, there is an ability to see certain things in heaven, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets, and their position. That's what's so frustrating. That's why fatalistic predestination is just not true. It's not true. Because people in hell knew that they had a chance to go to heaven. And fatalistic predestination says that they didn't have a chance to go to heaven because they were predestinated to go to hell. And if that was true, then they wouldn't feel the frustration of knowing that they could have been in heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the intensity of the frustration in hell comes from knowing that hell was totally unnecessary. Totally unnecessary because hell was not created for man. It wasn't created for man. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, Matthew 25, 41, everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, not for man. Heaven was prepared for man. Hebrews eleven sixteen. Hebrews eleven sixteen. Now they desire a better country that is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And so Christ came, when Christ came and died for our sins, it was so that he could take the sins of men away and the door of heaven could be open to every man. That's what John the Baptist was saying in John 1.29, John 1.29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. When that verse says that Jesus Christ takes away the sin of the world, it means the world and it's a look back to the goat that Aaron and his sons put their hands on the head of every year, once a year in Leviticus 16, 21, Leviticus 16, 21, which says, Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness and the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. So in that ceremony, when Aaron and his sons put their hands on the head of the goat, they were putting on the head of that goat all the sins of Israel. And that goat was taken into the wilderness and that goat was let go and he disappeared into the brush, indicating how God said, I will cast all your sins behind my back. I will remember them no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our iniquities. All of the sins of Israel, all of them, not just some of them, not just a limited amount, but all the sins of Israel were put on that goat. And that was the ceremony that showed the work of Jesus Christ in taking all the sins of the world, as it says in 1 John 2, 2, 1 John 2, 2. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
So just as that goat had all the sins of Israel, period, complete, all, laid on his head, and that goat was then carried them far away into the wilderness, Jesus Christ had all the sins of the world loaded on him, which is what Isaiah 53, 4 is saying. Isaiah 53, 4 is saying, surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now the question becomes, who is the we? Who is the our in our transgressions that were laid on him, our wounds that he suffered? Who is it? The next verse tells us, all we like sheep went astray. We turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he's wounded for all our transgressions, not as the Calvinists say, just a, a dying only for the sins of the world, not this flower needs to be thrown out, but he died for all the sins of the world, and when he died for all the sins of the world, the world didn't care at all. The world could care less, as described by Isaiah 53, 6. The world is, us included, all we like sheep. We just went astray. Turned everyone to his own way, and during that time, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we and the world, we were busy going astray from God. We and the world were busy going our own way, not God's way. And that's what we and the world were doing while at the same time as that was happening, God was laying all the sins of the world on Christ, as it says in Romans 5.8, Romans 5.8. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet going astray from God, Christ died for us. While we were yet going our own way, Christ died for us. This shows the unbelievable love of God. The love of God was that he didn't look at us and say, oh, look at that good person down there. Oh yeah, okay. I'll have Christ die for his sins because, but that other person, no, no, no. He's a horrible person. I'm not gonna have Christ die for his sins. No, he's really bad. I'll have Christ die for the good sinner. That's not what God did. God reached deep down into his heart of love and said, everyone is a horrible sinner and I'm gonna have die, Christ die for the sins of everyone, not just the persons who look better than others. I'll have Christ take away all the sins of the whole world. That's the love of God. That's the love of God. And this is the love of God. And that's why John 1.29 says, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. He took all the sins of the world away, not just the sins of those who accept him as Savior, and so then the question is, well, if Christ took all the sins of the world away, then why are some cast into hell? And the answer is that they chose that. They chose to hold on to their sins. And that's what Christ referred to as dying in sin in John 8, 24. John 8, 24, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am, you shall die in your sins. All a person has to do is bow the knee before Jesus Christ, confessing him as God and Savior, and if a person's not willing to do that, then he dies in his sin and he's cast into hell totally unnecessary. 
Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. That's P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. That's tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. For more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Come join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at The Vine at 9336 Abraham Way, Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. This program is brought to you by Israel Restoration Ministries.